Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. The Children's Division within the Missouri Department of Social Services has been under turmoil for quite some time. And one of the people with power to oversee this important agency is State Representative Hannah Kelly. The Wright County Republican joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about the changes that need to happen within the Children's Division and her expectations for the 2024 legislative session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equal. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, she covers all things state politics and state government for St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us for the second time, the first time since 2019, uh, she is the representative from Wright County. I don't know if she's the only Wright Countyan in the Missouri legislature, uh, but our special guest today is Hannah Kelly. Just remind our listeners um, what your district is and what it encompasses. Yes. Yeah, so for the first six years, it encompassed part of Webster County and all of Wright County. And now after the district change um, here, previous right before the previous. Um, well, what would that been in 22, I guess. Um I now represent Wright County and about 80% of Laclede County, a part of Douglas County, and a tiny little portion of Webster. It is a, a lot of ground to cover, but just as yes, sir. just as you cover a lot of ground in your legislative district, we have a lot of ground to cover in politically speaking. And the, the thing that I want to talk about first is the children's division. Now, yes. you're, you are the chairwoman of the House Children's and Families committee, which often Mm -hmm. oversees this very important division that has seen a lot of turmoil over the last few years. Can you just uh, like explain why this agency has been under so much turmoil? And do you think anything has improved since you really dove in to overseeing this department? Man, that is such a loaded question, and you are so good at your job because I think you know how loaded of a question that is. Um, but I will start first with saying I sure hope so. Um, we have one more session left that I am able to serve in because of term limits, as we were just discussion, discussing before we went live. And my number one priority is going to continue to be doing work with my colleagues and with all branches of government to help move this conversation forward in the right direction for our kids. But You know, when I first got elected, I did not expect this to be 
the thing that I was concerned about. And I will never forget sitting as a freshman in children and families and realizing that we were looking at legislation that was affecting thousands of kids' lives. And really, honestly, nobody on that committee and nobody in the body at that time, except for maybe four or five members, knew anything about the process, anything about what it meant to be a foster parent, anything about what it meant to, for on a firsthand level to walk through the adoption process, anything about what it meant to help victims reach out for help or to, you know, to walk through the hotline process to make sure that that victims had a chance at justice, right? And um, and so with that began my own journey of becoming trained as a foster parent and um, diving into the policy end, as well as starting to have conversations with folks all around the state about what do we have and how can we be better? And as you know better than most people, that conversation is still ongoing and has not ended. And now as I'm in, nearing my last term, I find myself in a great mode of reflection uh, with an eye towards the future, praying and strategizing and going, okay, what do we do? Because, you know, seven years, I like to think we got a lot done, but you and I both know we have a lot of work to do. Um, I am very, I mean, I could talk about this for probably the entire session, but you and I both know that we don't, we have more to cover. Um, you know, some of the big things that we got done, um, I would like to point to include the adoption of foster care tax credit under Speaker Rob Viscovo's leadership. He called me in when he had the idea. He called me actually before session began and he said, um, I'd like you to take lead on this. And of course I was excited and and I'll never, I mean, that thing was fought from start to finish. It was fought from start to finish, but, but at the end of the day, everybody rallied around the understanding that our kids are our future and government does not a good parent make. And if we can encourage parents, whether through foster care or adoption, to help produce the best environment for the child, that's always going to be a win and a winning investment for state taxpayer dollars. One of the issues that many media outlets have highlighted over the last few years is that there aren't enough people at the Children's Division to do very, very important work, like investigating whether right. child abuse or neglect is happening. In fact, I read right. an article by, I think it was either, the, the, I think it was the Missouri Independent, where Director Missy said some of these investigators were drowning in cases and they could not possibly, like, close them in time. Now, that was in right. 2022. Um, right. Are you still hearing that that is a problem in 2023? 100%. 100%. You know, I, I had the privilege of being in Kansas City at the National Child Welfare Symposium, I believe, um, back last year. And they asked me to speak for a few minutes, and I'll say now what I said then, and that is, you know, I don't know if you ever heard, I if I could be such and such for a day. You know, if I could be Jason Rosenbaum for a day, this is what I would say. Well, if I could be governor for a day, I would work towards more privatization within our system. I would. And and I'll never forget the day I said that. You could feel the room get a little, a little quiet, you know. Um, but I believe that if we could see a universe where we focus on the, I think the state, of course, still has to be involved, right? I'm not saying 115% privatization, 
I'm saying let the state focus on the hotline. Let the state focus on the investigations. Let the state focus on the overall mechanism of how we implement the best outcome for these kids in crisis. But let people in the private sector have more freedom to work out the answers that is brought to the table. And don't let government get in the way of private sector answers. I'm gonna I'm gonna give a for example, okay? And I should have I should have got this guy's name in front of me before the interview, and I didn't. But there's a gentleman in Florida that I was able to meet with um, that day in Kansas City when I went to the to the child welfare symposium, and he helped to bring Florida into more of a privatization mode within their foster system. And one thing that really stood out to me in the conversations that we had were. He said, Hannah, he said, he said, what we found was you can either have this box that you think looks like the perfect qualifications for the perfect caseworker, right? Check this degree, check this degree, check this, you know, certification, et cetera. I'm, and I don't deny or negate the importance of those things. But what they did in Florida is what we are starting to try to address here in Missouri through conversations that happened in this last session and conversations that I hope to see move forward. And that is to not be so focused on what the federal government says we must do and be more focused on the individual, who is that individual serving the needs of the child? So in other words, I'm gonna use this guy that I met from Florida. He helped the Jeb Bush administration give more privatization to their DFS system. And, and the way that they, the primary way that really stuck out to me was if he had a mom who had successfully been a stay-at-home mom for 15 years and all of her kids were happy and healthy and, and she had previous workforce experience, but the most important part was, was she had strong, she knew what it meant to build a strong home, right? And yeah, she may not have said in the state legislature or she may not have had a master's degree, but she knew how to relate and interact and engage with the kiddo. He was going to consider that mom just as quickly as he would consider anybody that would fit into the proverbial box. And what they began to see was a change in their retention rate. Because just like in the company that my sister and I own, we can go hire anybody off the street to sell real estate, but not everybody loves to sell real estate, right? And the two are not the same, but the principle still remains. You have to have a passion for the work you do, otherwise it's just work. And so his approach, and his leadership included making sure that we are not just checking boxes, but we're really looking at the people we're hiring and making sure that the people we're hiring are serving the needs of the children and are passionate about doing so. And taking that leadership approach to make sure that that is done has quantified in like 80 some percent retention rate in Florida now. And I'd like to see that in Missouri. I want to just make sure that I understand what you're saying here before I ask my next question. You think that yep. some aspects of the children's division should essentially be contracted out to private entities. Uh, Correct. With, with, the, with the idea that there will be cost savings that, for instance, yep. could be used to hire more people to staff the hotline and more people yep. to investigate uh instances of child abuse or neglect and not only not only hire more people but raise the salaries for some of these investigators one of the issues that i've heard is this 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 is really important work that clearly needs to be done by a governmental entity 
But Mm -hmm. you cannot expect somebody to go into somebody's house and see if they're see if there's child abuse going on if they're getting paid like forty thousand dollars a year to do that. It has to be at least like fifty or sixty thousand to incentivize more people to do that type of job, especially in places like St. Louis. That's a more of an observation than a question, but I'd like you to to respond to that. First of all, I will preface my agreement with you with this. I understand that we are talking about a lot of hypothetical situations in regards to what a solution would be today. You and I both know that, the listeners know that. Um, But that, I believe, is where all good ideas start, right? And no, I don't have all the answers, but I look forward to having one more chance this coming session to help find them. And I would say, yes, it does start with looking at that pay scale and what the reality is and how the private sector can do better. Because like, if you go out on the street right now, my understanding is if you go out on the street and talk to a caseworker that's employed through the state and a caseworker that's employed through a private entity, the caseworker employed through the private entity is happier, stays longer, and has more job satisfaction. That's, that is my own personal experience. Now, again, there might be listeners with scientific data to prove me wrong. I will follow that with saying that we have a fantastic leader in the governor's appointee, uh, Judge Missy, who is really working to change things. I do not want to discredit the work that he is doing. Um, but I'm talking about the larger picture. I'm not talking about any one administration. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about when Jason Rosenbaum and Hannah Kelly are sitting in the rockers and we're 95, Lord willing. I'm talking about what it looks like then, right? Because I believe that's how good government happens. It's not getting so stuck on where we are at right now, but where we need to be when we no longer can have a say. And um, and so again, my criticisms today are not against the current administration. My criticisms are in a hope that we can all work together to build a better picture for when we're off the scene and no longer the decision makers. And I do appreciate the work and the open door that Judge Missy has had to working to facilitate change. And I'm looking forward to him being part of the conversation as we work into next session. Governor Parson did include significantly more money in the budget for the Children's Division. Do you think that this could help alleviate some of the problems? Okay, yes, but I'm going to co- I'm going to follow up with an again very transparent well-intended criticism. Whether you're running a business in the private sector, whether you're taking care of your family budget at home, whether you are running a government, money is never the answer for everything. Because the minute that I start thinking that money answers all my problems is the minute I stop being creative. It's the minute I stop thinking outside of the box. It's the minute that I stop challenging myself. That again is what I believe we have found ourselves to be in the condition of which has now precipitated the crisis that we have with over 13,000 children in our system. And so money, yes, does become a piece of the puzzle, but I preach this to anyone who will listen. And that is we not only, yes, we need more funding, but we need creative thinking. And we need to tell the federal government to go back to Washington DC on some of these issues like certification that we dealt with last session on requirement, on on hiring certification Um, and and other conversations. We need to make sure that we're doing what works best for Missouri's families. And we need to make sure that we're doing what works best, not just on paper, but in real life. And that money is part of the puzzle, but it isn't the whole puzzle. I am very thankful for the governor agreeing to the funding increase. I was happy to be part of the budget committee that voted that to the floor. Um, 
but it's not the whole answer. And my hope is, is that we can remember that as we go forward. Governor Mike Parson vetoed roughly $555 million worth of projects in the 2024 fiscal year budget. What was your reaction to those vetoes? I've never sat in the governor's shoes. So I'm going to speak very carefully. Um, I understood some of his reasoning and some of it I didn't understand. Um, overall, I I know that we're going to go to veto session and have the con- the constitutional opportunity to make the conversations that we do. Um, and we'll see what happens with that. And I think there's a lot to be answered there, right, as to what direction that takes. So that's all a work in progress within the body. Um, my, my reaction simply would be that government has checks and balances. And I'm going to respect his right to check and balance us. And, and I do hope, my, I've always, I've had a long-held passion of, of all branches of government remembering that, remembering what my campaign manager told me in my first campaign. Hannah, you'll be just fine if you remember that you can't take anything personal, right? So just as the governor has the power to check and balance us, the legislature has the power to check and balance the executive branch. And um, I think that's very important for us all to remember as we move forward. And again, quoting my my first campaign manager, it's not it's not personal, it's just business. And um, there'll be some conversations. Um, but I just, my passion is always that we all remain respectful and stay focused on the people that we actually are supposed to work for. Yeah, there's been some angst from both parties on some of these vetoes. What do you think that means for the veto session? Do you think there's going to be kind of a greater effort to overturn some of these budget vetoes? Oh, there'll be some efforts as far as level of success. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to talk to the level of success until after summer caucus during a couple of weeks. Um, there'll be efforts. I mean, there are some people that are really dug in on some things, but I, I don't want to go into that here out of respect to those individuals. Right. Um, who are still working through that process. And, and, and you know, also leadership has some decisions to make. And, and of course, I'll be supportive of, of what that ultimate package looks like. Um, but again, checks and balances of government. And it, it will never fail to be very interesting. Well, we will have more interesting conversation with State Representative Hannah Kelly on Politically Speaking after this quick break. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Hannah Kelly. She is a Republican from the beautiful and scenic Wright County, Missouri. Shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that did not pass in 2023 was a, a ballot measure that would have raised the threshold to amend the state constitution. Do you expect yes. that issue to be revived in the 2024 session? Absolutely. And I'll be doing everything I can to help encourage that conversation. Why do you think that that's a good idea? I'm going to be very frank with you, and this is not going to be politically popular, um, but I get approached by people every day who were unaware of provisions with the last marijuana initiative. Um, They're shocked at some things that they didn't see, that they didn't understand in it. And now these things are happening. And I get hit with it all the time. Um, 
I think people, people at large in, in rural Missouri anyway, believe that the Constitution is something that should not be easily trifled with and, and should be carefully changed if it's changed. And I, ha- I agree, and so therefore I believe that raising the standard by which one is allowed to attempt to change the Constitution, um, again, will be one of those things that long after I'm gone will help to ensure that Missouri is still the place everybody wants to move to. Mm-hmm. So. so, but I want to move to a different state because Ohio is about to have a, a vote in August about whether to raise the threshold in their constitution mm-hmm. from a simple majority to 60%. And I understand that the proposal in Missouri could be different than that, but it's the same concept, basically. Right. But if that ends up failing, like a similar proposal failed in Arkansas, do you think mm-hmm. that it may compel Republican House and Senate leadership to be like, eh, this isn't really something worth pursuing in 2024. I don't know. I mean, if we all have the glass ball, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Time time will tell, and we'll both know that answer in time. Um, I know from my position for the term that I have left, I will be stressing the importance of finding a productive compromise between everyone to move the conversation forward because this conversation must move forward. Um, it, it, it has to for so many reasons. And so no matter what house leadership does in regards to that conversation, I will always be on the side of supporting IP reform. I know that's not your favorite term to use, but I can't help myself. You're allowed to use it. You could say whatever you want. I'm not using that term because I don't like the word reform. But Sarah, I know you have a couple more questions on this topic. I do. House Speaker Dean Plocker explicitly linked raising the bar to amend Missouri's constitution to prevent abortion from being legalized in Missouri. Do you agree with the speaker on this? I would have to be reminded of the full connotation of that conversation as to whether I agree or not. But my response in full would be, that more than ever, I am focused on making sure that Missouri stays a strong pro-life state and a beacon for our future leaders and for the mothers of those future leaders. And I think our conversation has proven that here to this point. Um, I am concerned that without IP reform, we continue to have issues brought to the ballot that chip away at our strong pro-life, pro-family foundation here in Missouri. And so and that is probably chief in my concern of why I believe that IP reform is very important and um, and that we protect our unborn children um, here in the state of Missouri and they have a chance at life. And I do not want their chance at life to be harmed because of a ballot measure that wasn't thoroughly vetted. Wouldn't you think the easier course of action for opponents of abortion rights would be to raise money and organize to defeat the amendment rather than go through, you know, making it harder to amend Missouri's constitution? Well, I think to be very clear, I think efforts to defeat any potential pro-abortion amendment that might go to the ballot are are ongoing. I'm very familiar with um, many efforts that are being led right now. I myself am part of some of those efforts to make sure that we continue the conversation about why it's important to protect unborn babies here in the state of Missouri. Um, I don't Again, I'm a little different. You you guys know this by now. Like I, I'm a little old fashioned in my thinking, but I don't think that IP reform lends to any one subject. I think that the overall principle of it 
is very important for the overall integrity of our constitution. Does the lack of IP reform or the passage of IP reform affect certain issues that mean much to me? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I believe that we need to look at a good conversation on IP reform, not for any one issue, but for the overall integrity of the future of our constitution and the future of the leaders that we hand the baton off to and in days to come. Now, one of the things that did end up passing, and actually it was two bills, so it was one of the things that ended up passing, um, mm -hmm. was that the, the legislature barred transgender minors from accessing things like hormone therapy or puberty blockers. They also passed mm -hmm. legislation that bars transgender athletes from playing high school or college sports that align with their gender identities. Those have, those have been signed. There's clearly going to be litigation over that. I'm not going to ask you to speculate on how the litigation ends up because who knows at this point. What I am going to ask mm -hmm. you, though, is do you think that there will be any other legislation around the broad spectrum of, of transgender rights or transgender issues in 2024? I don't have a clear lead on that um, at this point. I will tell you that I unequivocally know that the legislature will stand by the decisions that we made and we will take every effort to stand by the decisions that we made in this last session um, because again our children are our future our children are our future and um and that is a whole that is a whole bucket of conversation that would take another show probably mm -hmm. but i don't have a good i don't have a good answer for you um but i wouldn't be surprised yeah and, and here's the reason i'm asking that question okay i talked with a number mm -hmm. of transgender adults especially after the attorney general put forth his emergency rules that would have affected transgender adults from getting things like hormone therapy or gender transition surgery. And they they adamantly uh -huh. believe that the legislature is going to try and take those things away from adults next. Now, I've talked to a lot of Republicans and they do not agree. They they are, they said we're 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 putting the 18 we're saying 18 or under can't do it when you're an adult that's your decision, basically. I, I'd be interested to hear your mm -hmm. your, your take mm -hmm. on that because it, there's clearly some disagreement within your party about that next step, about whether to do the same thing for adults that you just did for, for children. You know, my response to that would be, I, again, stand by the decisions that was made in session. Secondly, you know, hopefully Speaker Plocker lets me be chairman of children and families for one more term. You know, and I'll be able to have a role in that conversation in this last session that I serve here. And personally, personally, I, I do not believe that, I mean, I, I was on the record on the floor saying that I believe that gender is assigned by God. I do. And I believe that um, science and history supports that. And I understand there are many conflicting and diverse beliefs on this subject. I am going to say that I would have to see the legislation. There's one thing that I've learned 
um, good friend of, I think both you and I, Sonia Marie Anderson taught me early, early on. Don't, don't ever say you're one way or another until you've seen what something would look like in writing. And I'm not going to sit here and say I'm for or against a futuristic piece of legislation that I have not seen the words, right? I've not seen what's included in the bill because that makes all the difference in the world on any subject. In regards to this conversation though, again, there is recorded video of me saying, I believe your gender is assigned at birth, er, at conception, pardon me. And, um, uh, and I believe that it is a step too far to try to um, influence children to think that they can have a choice in their gender. And so because of that, I voted in support of the legislation we're discussing. And I will add, somebody brought up to me this, the sports teams this week, and they just thought that was just, they just didn't like my vote on it. They didn't like my vote on it because they thought it was government maybe going too far. And so they were kind of taking that approach. My response to that is, listen, I'm not saying I'm perfect. Nobody is. But I can tell you right now, I went and voted yes on that bill to protect women's sports. And I would vote yes again every single day and twice on Sunday, every chance I have. Because for me, it is simply a safety factor. It is literally and simply a safety factor. I have a daughter. I have nieces. I have sisters. I have many acquaintances as we all do in our life. And I, you know, as a 35-year-old female legislator from rural Missouri, I hear all the time about, you know, giving women a voice, right? And I believe it is my responsibility to make sure that our girls are given a voice of protection and they don't have to be in fear for their safety to simply pursue their passion of sports. Um, and also, you know, as you know, Jason, I have dealt a lot with sexual abuse legislation within the, the house and our sexual assault survivors um, need to be assured of their safety. There's unfortunately many minors who deal with many traumatic things because of things that have happened to them. I don't want a sexual assault survivor to be worried because of who's in the locker room um, as a minor child. Like that to me would be just, that would be so, that would be heart wrenching to know that, you know, that that was a situation because we didn't take the move to protect women's sports, make sure, and, you know, to make sure that the kids are safe. To me, that's what it's about. But I, have to, me, to fo- about- I have to follow up on that. Have there really been a, a lot of instances of a transgender athlete committing sexual assault? Like, I feel like. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I have had foster kiddos in my home who are victims of sexual assault. Okay. And so that trauma follows them. Right. That trauma follows them. And sometimes that trauma can come to the surface in situations where if you're a girl and you're in a girl's locker room and there's a boy in the girl's locker room, that can be a trigger, right? I mean, and I'm just take, I'm painting a picture here to help you understand what I'm, I'm trying to say. I want to avoid those kind of triggers for our children. I want our children to feel safe. And now people, you know, people continue to come after me saying, well, this isn't your business to have a say in this conversation. 
Well, we're talking about sports teams here that are operating within our public schools where we send our money and that we help oversee. And I like to have a good night's sleep at night. And I can't have a good night's sleep at night if I don't know and make for sure that our young ladies are kept safe when they simply want to go be a kid and have fun playing a sport that, he, that she might be good at. Um, no matter whether that young lady is a sexual assault survivor or just a young lady wanting to go out and live her life, right? That hasn't had that trauma. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, no, I'm not, I'm not insinuating that some transgender person has assaulted somebody at all. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a simple matter of safety and a protection from traumatic triggers that could negatively impact children as they grow into adults in a way that that is not healthy for that child and that then adult and society at large. Like we need to make sure that we are not inducing trauma on people and on young ladies who simply want to go have fun in school and play sports. You mentioned uh, public schools. The uh, bill mm-hmm. that was signed into law actually also applies to private entities. Do you think that there there's any authority there to dictate what both uh, private uh, uh, K-12 schools and universities can do on this? Obviously, you know my vote on the bill. I stand behind the language of it also including the, the private schools um, because it's not only about, just as we discussed earlier, money only plays a, a puzzle piece. And the ultimate answers that I believe that government needs to look for. And um, safety is universal. It is not exclusive to one institution. And I appreciate your question. And I appreciate the fact that I did, that you want, you heard me say, I was talking about the funding there. And, and it's, a, it's a fair question. And my response to that would be that I support the language in said bill and will continue to support it as we move forward because Again, money isn't the only piece to the answers. It is about safety uh, and it is about a responsibility that we have to make sure that our next generation doesn't have um, the trauma triggers, doesn't have a lack of safety because appropriate boundaries weren't set. It breaks my heart that we're having to have these conversations, but we have to have them. So in the last few minutes that we've of this conversation. I want to shift to politics mm-hmm. and we'll do a little bit. Of, mm-hmm. Should we do like a little bit of rapid fire, quick hit type of questions? Oh, I, you're, you're the boss. You're the boss. Let, <laughs> let, let's do it. Republicans are engaged in primaries for every statewide office up for grabs, except the U S Senate. Do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing for Missouri Republicans? I don't think it's good or bad. I think we all have to remember to be statesmen. What do you th- make of the primary for governor between uh, Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe, Secretary of State uh, Jay Ashcroft, and Senator Bill Eigel. Just in general, how do you think that's going to play out over the next few months? I think that folks are looking for someone who can identify with the kitchen table. And um, it will be very interesting. This is probably a weird question since you're a Republican, but I would be interested since you have served with Leader Quaid since you both came into the legislature and she is now running mm-hmm. for governor. What type of... Mm-hmm. What type of opponent do you think that she's going to be for whoever comes out of that primary? I think that we have a strong, um, we have we have strong, strong candidates on the Republican side, and I do believe that whoever wins our primary will be our next governor. 
Um, I believe she will be a competitive opponent. Um, she works hard. I've, I've witnessed her working hard, even when we are loggerheads, opposite sides of issues. And I, I respect her for that uh, because I don't expect to agree with everyone in my universe. But I do believe that whoever wins the Republican uh, primary will be our next governor. And I will work to support the winner of the Republican primary. Now, before we pressed record, you did mention that you wanted to talk about the the the, the hotly contested treasurer's race, which has three candidates. And I, I'm not trying to mock that race. Like, that, like I, 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 although the tone of my voice did kind of make it seem like I was mocking it. But it is an important office. But there really hasn't been Absolutely. a there has not been a competitive race for Republicans to become treasurer in a, since 2004. So, yeah. Yeah. So this has been interesting. Um, and I unashamedly stand behind Cody Smith. Um you know, we have, a, again, we have strong people throughout our party ready to step up and lead and serve Missouri. I respect everyone at the table at this, you know, in these statewide primaries. Um, however, I have been with Cody Smith in the proverbial trenches of doing the right thing when it needs to be done, no matter what's going on around you. And I believe that that is the kind of leadership that we need in that office. That's the kind of leadership that we need at the state level. And I believe in it so much that yes, I'm refraining on opinions about other things, but not on that. I'd like everyone listening to consider voting for Cody Smith. Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining us on Politically Speaking. Uh, Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our stories at stlpr.org. And Representative, you mentioned social media. How can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? Well, I have a public page, Hannah Kelly, on Facebook, and also have at Hannah Kelly Mo on Twitter, and also have an Instagram account, and happy to connect there anytime. Um, I always love to hear from folks, and really appreciate being on your show today. And thank you very much, and until next time, so long.